So I'm going to start, describe where we are. We are on the rooftop of our work and I think there's bushfires so the nice view is no longer a nice view unfortunately. Hopefully we'll get a bit of atmospheric sounds, you know, maybe some sirens. And... It's like an 80s dance party. Yeah. But like, you, we've got uh, the smoke machine that is, you know, the bush. But this would be a nice place for a party, right? This would be an amazing place yeah. for a party. I oh. can just see it. This week, Francine is off playing, I mean, winning basketball. <laughs> um, so I'm catching up with my mate Gideon Meyerowitz Katz uh, to do this podcast today. Hi, Gib. Hey, how's it going, Felicity? Good, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be back. So, Gid is an epidemiologist. He's also a PhD candidate uh, and a certified health nerd uh, who tweets at GidMK if you want to follow him. Indeed. <laughs> so, Gid, we should probably plug something before we start. Uh, do you want to tell everyone about your amazing podcast? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do a podcast called Sensationalist Science. It's a podcast about uh, media misunderstandings and uh, healthcare news. And mostly I examine where the science behind the story and why what you hear in the headlines isn't always entirely accurate. Um, it's, it's a very cheerful podcast. I, I find it quite soothing to listen to, so definitely would recommend. Thank you. <laughs> I try to make it funny because, it, you know, some of these things are so ridiculous, you just have to laugh. <laughs> so this is a bit of an unusual podcast this week um, because I want to focus not on something that has happened, but on something that's really remarkable because it hasn't happened. So until a few weeks ago, there was no organisation that you could join as a person with obesity to publicly advocate for your health care rights in Australia. Now there are two groups that are both jostling to position themselves as the go-to representative body for people with obesity, but they have fundamentally different ideas about what their members want. And the rivalry has already started to turn ugly. So when I sat down and thought about this, there are consumer advocacy groups for pretty much everything in Australia. But then you look around and there's just nothing for people who have obesity. Hmm. Isn't that weird? That's so strange. Yeah, well, I, I, th this is a thing that I, I think is kind of the, the crux of the issue, I guess, to me, is that it's, it, it really comes back to, like, what is a condition? What is a disease? What, what is something that... that um, we can discuss in, a, in the sense of advocacy. What needs advocacy, I guess? I think the thing that occurred to me is that with obesity, you know, even if it isn't a disease in the classical sense of disease, it's still a thing. It's still something that, like, people definitely fit into that category. They would, you know, self-identify as being obese or being someone who had a larger body. There would be similar issues that would affect those people. If, if only you're talking about things like stigma. Um, so it surprised me that those people who have common interests wouldn't be standing up and shouting about what they want. Yeah, look, <laughs> see, that, that I can agree with. So then I, you know, started talking to some people who were involved in the Hayes movement. Do you want to explain to people what Hayes is? Healthy at every size is um, basically a movement aimed at, I, I, I guess, first destigmatizing fatness generally and secondly focusing away from weight loss as a treatment and more towards healthy behaviors more broadly uh so you know encouraging exercise and healthy foods whatever that might mean regardless of weight and also looking more at i guess the emotional and psychological side of of issues that may be underlying uh, extreme obesity or the people who are fatter. 
And I think I find the movement, you know, interesting and, and hard because as in my work, it's pretty incontrovertible that we probably should be trying to make people, or not make people do anything. We probably should be helping people to lose weight if we can. On the other hand, I agree wholeheartedly that destigmatizing obesity and that encouraging people towards healthy behaviors, no matter how much they weigh, is important. So I think, again, it's that delicate balance. It's interesting that you say encouraging people towards healthy behaviors because I. There's a bit of a split. So <laughs> Hayes Australia, which is the Hayes Group in Australia, is very in favour of promoting healthy behaviour. But when you look at the Hayes International Group, and apparently their principles are aligned, but I am starting to question that. When you look at the International Hayes Group, mm. it's more about it's more, way more radical than that. They say that health is not a moral obligation for anyone, so you shouldn't have to do anything healthy. Um, they say that they're very anti-dieting. So right. all di diets are off the table. You should basically throw out your scales, stop worrying about your weight. Um, and they were very much in favor of no restrictions on foods. It sounds like what they're promoting, particularly at Hayes Australia, is this idea of intuitive eating and intuitive behaviors. Um, so really trusting your own instincts, trusting your body to tell you when you're hungry, um, to tell you when you're full, to guide you towards eating foods that are probably better for you. and kind of think there might be something in that you know this idea that if you tell someone they absolutely can't have something that person is going to want to crave it <laughs> um, and if you tell them they have to cut it out for six weeks they're going to go straight back to it when that six weeks is over but if you're more moderate and balanced i think that's healthier in terms of your wellness and psychology and it might be easier to stick to a slightly more balanced diet if you're not being quite so hard on yourself yeah well and again this is part of the challenge i think because um, uh, like personally I find intuitive eating a very interesting idea I don't think there's a lot of evidence there's some evidence certainly but I, I don't know if there's strong evidence that it's necessarily the best option but when we talk about extreme weight loss in the diabetes space we've recently seen a direct trial uh, it's a trial in England very very big where they used very low calorie diets which are basically um, that meal replacement shakes uh, with people with diabetes and those people, on average, lost an enormous amount of weight. Um, and of those people, the majority kept it off after one year. And they soon, I, I can't remember if they've released their two-year results or if they're soon to release their two-year results. But regardless, they had a 50% diabetes remission in that study. And for diabetes, you know, 15 years ago, diabetes remission wasn't even considered to be possible. You know, you had type 2 diabetes, it was a progressive disease, eventually you got worse, and then eventually you died. So it, it's just reconciling the the really kind of strong and good message that obesity isn't something that should be disparaged, and stigma is something that should be reduced, with the evidence that we can potentially really help people by helping them to lose weight. Yeah, so this is where Hayes would probably strongly disagree with you. So they yeah. would say that... Um, you know, people with obesity should be accepted for who they are and that it's both immoral and impractical to attempt to eliminate this group by weight loss programs such as this, you know, one that you're talking about. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. There's, yeah, see... It's also, you have to keep in mind that the clinical guidelines, and I read through the NHMRC's clinical guidelines for obesity, at the moment they kind of recommend a realistic weight loss goal for someone who doesn't have diabetes but is over obese, 
a, a realistic goal is about 5% weight loss. Mm. And then they say that most people over five years put that back on. Mm. Um, and that it's really difficult to keep that weight loss sustained long term. And that it's kind of... There's a little bit of evidence that some of your risk factors for diseases like diabetes are uh, reduced by that, um, you know, weight loss and then relapse. But it's not. I don't know how strong that evidence is. So, I mean, what you're, what the reality for people who are obese often is that they go to their GP and the GP says lose weight by diet and exercise and the person says well I've been trying that for 30 years and it hasn't worked <laughs> I keep swinging between you know two weight goalposts yeah. um, and I'm making myself incredibly miserable in the process so what I did for this story is I reached out some to some people on the so there's a Facebook group called the Moderation Movement. It's set up by um, a personal trainer and a dietitian, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people who are sort of pro haze have joined this group, um, and it basically promotes the kind of intuitive eating approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, re- I reached out to a few people on that group to talk to them. And talking to them, you can see why some people living with obesity feel like dieting is a cycle of self-abuse followed by failure, um, and they don't think that it's good for them. Mm. So this is what they're telling me. So that's the story that Fiona Tibbles from Melbourne told me over the phone. Doctors would classify her as obese. Yeah, so I guess probably since I was about 16, um, when I probably wasn't even that overweight, I've been dieting or thinking I should be on a diet if I wasn't on a diet at the time. So my life was constantly either on a diet or feeling guilty because I wasn't on a diet. Um, So she's only ever reached her weight loss goal once and she stayed there for precisely six weeks before putting the weight back on. The longest of sustained weight loss is probably six weeks. And actually staying at the the weight I got to. Um, My weight fluctuated. Yeah, probably for the last 20 years I've been losing and gaining the last, the same 10 kilos. And so after joining Weight Watchers for something like the 25th time, Miss Tibbles went to see a Hayes dietitian who said that dieting wasn't the answer. I actually got quite angry at her at the time because she's a very slim woman. And I thought, you know, what would she know about intuitive eating? You know, I'd live on a diet of chocolate if I ate intuitively. But she did some research and gradually came around to the idea. And now that she's not actively dieting, her relationship with food is much healthier, she says. Um, so she says chocolate will sit in the fridge for days, sometimes weeks, instead of being part of a pre-diet binge. Since adopting a freer and more relaxed attitude to food, Miss Tibbles says her weight has gone up, but that she's more active, eating more fruit and vegetables, and feeling happier. She says her latest blood test result shows her cholesterol and blood sugar are down. Um, so, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Would say Miss Tibble's experience speaks to me as well because I spent about a decade doing the same thing in my teens and early twenties, and going between uh, I was about ninety-eight and one hundred and ten kilos for quite some time, and I agree that it's incredibly depressing and uh, it's a very unhappy thing to go into the GP's office and then tell you for the second or third or fifth or thousandth time. You should probably lose some weight. That'll help with this other problem you've got. And you should lose some weight because you'll be healthier in all these other ways. It's very unhelpful. And particularly when your weight can be so very related to your lifestyle. I mean, part of how I lost weight was um, just because I got into a place where I was walking to work, where I was cycling to work where I was not able to access some of the foods that I previously was, and that really helped me 
and also dealing with some of my mental health issues. So I think it, that this is this is the why I find it so hard to 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 draw a line in the sand because I think that there are some really good arguments from health at every size, and I think there are some really important things about weight loss reducing your risk of disease i'm just seeing like someone rolling a boulder up a hill and having it roll back down like it's a sisyphus kind of yeah it's a sisyphean task yes (laughs) i just don't think that that is like telling someone to go out and do that to themselves how is that evidence-based healthcare well i don't think it is but that's why so for example um the direct study in our obesity clinic at blackstone hospital uh it's not just going out and telling people to do that and i think that's really where the science of obesity medicine, which is kind of emerging as a discipline, or diabetes is also part of that. But yeah, the science of obesity medicine is is heading. It's not about um, just giving people a sheet, a, 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 you know, an information sheet and telling them to go lose weight by themselves or even just referring them on. It's about having an integrated service where you give them the, the most evidence-based treatments like very low-calorie diets, like um, for some, pe- you know, uh, for some people, maybe a ketogenic diet is, is becoming quite popular. You know, the very low carb diet is being championed by the CSIRO in Australia. Um, you, you do these in an integrated manner with um, dietitians, with psychologists, with endocrinologists if necessary, specialist physicians, as well as GPs who are incredibly important in the process. And, and then you can see some amazing results that may, we don't know yet, but hopefully will last long term. But I think the traditional model where you just tell people to lose weight, where you maybe refer them to Weight Watchers or tell them to to try lean cuisine, that's definitely fading fast. That's awesome. And guess what you need to drive government to fund things like that? (laughs) An activist group with people who have obesity saying, look, this is what we think will actually help us. For me, it seems like if people with obesity don't want their doctors harping on about weight loss, um, you know, why is that the standard of care? And in the absence of a consumer advocacy group, um, there's very little public information about what people with obesity actually want, you know, and what sort of healthcare actually works. But interestingly, there's actually something that happened in the last six weeks that could help change that. Oh, really? Yeah, so there's this new advocacy group for people with lived experience of obesity that just launched. It's called the Weight Issues Network, and it's got about 100 members so far. So why do I feel like there's a twist coming? Yeah, so it's it's a really positive development. But as you're going to see in the second half of this episode, there are a few question marks around their ties to the Obesity Collective, uh, which gets its funding from pharma companies. Hmm... This week I sat down with Professor Gregory King to discuss COPD. This interview is sponsored by Metarini. My name is Greg King. I'm a respiratory physician. My area of interest and clinical practice is airways disease. So that includes asthma and COPD. And I'm very interested in the physiology and mechanisms in asthma and COPD. So what is COPD and how common is it? Well, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, that's what COPD stands for. It's an umbrella term, and it includes a lot of different conditions and a lot of variation 
in the types of conditions that we encounter in people that we label with COPD. And within that umbrella, there's things like emphysema, chronic bronchitis, small airways disease, airflow limitation, all those sort of things. But it's essentially the presence of airflow obstruction or airway narrowing on spirometry. So that's our gold standard simple lung function test in the presence of some sort of inhalational injury or insult. And for most Western countries, that would be cigarette smoking. People with airways disease, particularly when they're older, and this very much applies to COPD patients, patients become much more complex as an entity to handle. And that's why my approach, my recommended approach, is to think about airways disease in a, in a comprehensive manner, to characterize the condition in toto for that particular patient. And then then you can set goals with that patient. You can say, okay, these are the things that I've identified that are relevant to you. And of course, sleep disorders is very much part of that. Mm. So um, how do you treat a sleep disorder mm-hmm. around that particular patient's mm. you know, symptoms? Patients' reports of sleep problems are very common in COPD. Mm. I think about half or more will report some problem. For example, waking up at night, nocturnal waking, whether it be due to cough, bronchitis, or whether it's due to their airway narrowing getting worse, which wakes them up, or whether they have to wake up to go to the toilet, and then they they feel breathless when they do that. And that can influence their daytime function. And if you add that onto COPD, then the effects will be additive. So with the anxiety that a COPD Mm. patient Mm. might face when sleeping, how do you manage that psychological area? Mm. Mm. When you have COPD, it's often a vicious cycle Mm. because if you're breathless, it makes you anxious and it affects your mood, which then affects your breathlessness and it goes around like that. So breaking the cycle with them is is often very difficult and it often requires a, a multifaceted approach. So, for example, we, we, you might consider um, pharmacological treatment, drug treatment, and you might consider cognitive behavioral therapy. If they have severe COPD and they've got respiratory failure at night, you might consider sending them for um, nocturnal ventilation. So there's quite a, quite a bit that we can do potentially if we identify the problems. But I guess the problem is, is recognizing the potential problems, identifying it, and then we can address it. Is it possible for someone to have some of the symptoms of COPD and not realise that they have it? Probably most of the patients who have COPD don't realise they have it and they're they're undiagnosed. Mm. Their perception of airway narrowing and restriction of airflow is actually very blunted in COPD patients. So that's why using spirometry and other objective measures in any patients at risk is very important from my point of view. So I think um, case finding... Is, is worthwhile and very important. So there's, there's lots of arguments for and against, but case finding is basically if a person who smokes and has some degree of respiratory symptoms, they should have spirometry because there's a reasonable chance they have COPD. I know that some of the, some of the reluctance in case finding is that, well, if the spirometry proves to be normal and they're smoking, it just reinforces their smoking habit. But I, I would look at it this way, is that if you have that conversation about smoking and they 
are concerned enough to go and have lung function, you have more of an opportunity to discuss smoking cessation with them, not less. It's a wake-up call. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I think they're, if they're concerned enough and they've got the idea in their head that smoking is bad for them, I think there's a really good chance for you to get to take that opportunity and and really um, uh, have that discussion with them, not only once or twice, but you can have that ongoing discussion. So thanks, um, Professor Gregory King, for being um, with us today. You're welcome, um, Victoria. Okay, welcome back to the show. So, as we foreshadowed before, there's a bit of a war brewing between Haze Australia and the Weight Issues Network, which is this new group for people with lived experience of obesity. Every time people set up anything, no matter what it is, there'll be political strife. Yes. Well, I mean, it is, it's very political. So, and it's, it's funny, if you listen to a podcast that was done earlier this year called All Fired Up, it was one of their episodes, um, there were some haze advocates who completely ripped into the obesity collective. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, it did get a bit ugly. Okay, and the obesity collective is the group that helped set up WIN? Yeah, so that's right. Um, who are WIN? The Weight Issues Network. Ah, okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all, of the, uh, all of the acronyms just confuse me. Yeah, so they, they said a lot of things on this podcast um, in kind of a ridiculing tone, is right. I would say. And one of the things they ridiculed was the Obesity Collective's stated intention to be empathetic towards people with obesity. Um, and their point was, how can you be empathetic towards people you're trying to eradicate through weight loss? An analogy might be uh, if... The, an advocacy group for deaf people were to promote the idea that all deaf people should become hearing. Yeah, it would be similar to that. And one of the major criticisms that Hayes has towards the Obesity Collective is its source of funding. So while Hayes Australia is 100% funded by membership fees, the Obesity Collective has a lot of sponsors. And, and a lot of these sponsors are pharmaceutical companies, which would be very interested in painting obesity as this treatable medical condition or this really big problem that needs to be solved. Wow, okay. So the Obesity Collective sponsors include Johnson & Johnson, a major manufacturer of obesity surgery devices, uh, Novo Nordisk, the creator of anti-obesity drug Saxenda, Amgen Australia, a company investing in anti-obesity R&D, and Fitbit, a market leader in fitness wearables. So that's the Obesity Collective, and Obesity Australia, which actually has the same ABN as the Obesity Collective, has also received half a million dollars of funding from pharma companies, including around $280,000 from Allergen Australia, which makes lap bands. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Look, I can see why someone might be sceptical. <laughs> So I just wanted to pause this podcast for a minute or two and get Tiffany Pedro, the director of the Obesity Collective, to add some more detail on this part about sponsors. Um, this is just so we're being as fair and accurate and balanced as we can. So here's Tiffany. Thank you, Felicity. There are a few points to clarify around funding and support for the collectives. Firstly, since the launch last year, the main financial supporters that the collective and our projects are the University of Sydney, New South Wales Health, and the Upa Health Foundation. There is a small portion of support coming from treatment industries, but only like 10% of the total. 
which has mostly gone towards third party services such as events and media consulting advice. But I think it's important to note that there are many, many interests and businesses that are making money off this challenge, not just the pharmaceutical and treatment industries. For example, there are hundreds of fad diets being advertised in Australia, loads of books, supplements, weight loss programs, challenges, and specialty foods. There are also groups that are making money off the issue getting worse. So at least um, the pharmaceutical and treatment industries have to abide by minimum standards around evidence of effectiveness and not harming people, which is not the case for many of those other businesses in this space. So we all need to consider the commercial interests of all companies operating in this space, and we do in the collective. We actually have a risk framework for assessing who can join and support the collective. Now, there has been some confusion around Obesity Australia and the collective history, so I want to clarify. The funding from pharma that you have referenced is from over five years ago and not really relevant for our current operations. Uh, we don't have access to that funding. It's on. Uh, the team and the approach for OA actually changed in 2015. And in 2018, when the collective launched, the collective's leaders decided that working within Obesity Australia was the most efficient and effective way to go forward as opposed to having set up a whole new legal entity. And, uh, and the Obesity Australia constitution was changed to, to allow for this. So to summarize for listeners, we need to be aware of all interests in this space, and there are many. And the collective's major funders are not profiting from the treatment of obesity. Thank you. Um, great, thanks so much, Tiffany. Okay, back to the show. And it's... what I wanted to ask you about was, you have some understanding of how other advocacy groups around medical conditions are run. Mm -hmm. Are they also in bed with pharma companies? So groups like Diabetes Australia? Well, I, I find the uh, animosity towards pharmaceutical corporations sometimes a bit misplaced. Um, but uh, particularly when it comes to these disease advocacy groups, but then it, it's, a, it's a very complex question, I think, sometimes, because often they are given grants um, by pharmaceutical companies. Um, uh, I know that Diabetes Australia has some sponsors behind it. Um, yeah, I'd be surprised if they don't. Yeah, uh, Not to pick on them, but... No. The challenge with conflicts of interest is that whether a group is, is necessarily promoting the, the interests of their members or promoting the interests of an outside group that's funding them. Um, I think for some organizations that's less of a problem because they're largely funded by their members and they may only accept the occasional small grant from a pharmaceutical company and that's not really, that's not going to change their whole agenda. For some other groups there have been cases, I think particularly in the States, where there are patient advocacy groups where 100% of their funding comes from pharmaceutical companies or, or not, not even necessarily pharma. And then that calls into question whether who they're advocating for. If all of your money is contingent and your salary is contingent on a group that sells products, are you more in line with their views or are you more in line with the, your members' views who theoretically you should be advocating for? And I think off from the examples that I know about, um, usually the organizations are very well funded through government and through uh, donations, and then maybe potentially they have small amounts coming in from pharmaceutical companies, compared small amounts compared to their overall funding. Sure. My feeling is that if you receive any money from a pharmaceutical company, it's going to become very awkward if you start criticizing them. That is also true. 
I mean, look. <laughs> and that alone wrong. is a, enough to push a human towards, okay, I might just not say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly if you want to be kind of, you know, polite and nice to the people who are yeah, paying for your organization. That's true. Um, so I just looked it up, and Diabetes Australia, and this is just one example of a group that has uh, a lot of people who have diabetes as part of the group, as well as other people. Um, so they've got Specsavers, Roche, a- AstraZeneca, Abbott Diabetes Care, Bayer, Lilly, uh, Sanofi Diabetes, Medtronic, Underworks, Energizer, as partners. So these are listed as corporate partners on their website. So I'm just saying it's kind of normal. Yeah, absolutely. I don't. I I would say that for most of the disease advocacy groups in Australia, I suspect that there are there's some interest, industry involvement because often, often people see it as a way of connecting. Uh, products with people who need it, I guess. The issue is that with obesity, not everyone is in agreement that it's a disease. Yes. So that's, that's where, it... where it's such a big problem to have these pharmaceutical companies who benefit financially from it being called a disease, you know, guiding the groups that are supposedly coming up with these, you know, policy statements and yeah, I mean, principles. Like, <laughs> for diabetes, it's easy. Medtronic makes insulin pumps and devices and for type 1 diabetics, those are life-saving. Yeah, no one with diabetes wants to have diabetes. It's yeah, <laughs> but, but I mean, I don't, I don't see such a huge conflict of interest. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's much less worrisome when uh, Diabetes Australia accepts funding from Medtronic because their members need Medtronic's products. And they, they want those they tr- products. Yes. But with a, people with obesity don't always want healthcare in the way that healthcare practitioners seem to want to give it to them so this is where it so can that's be where very it becomes complex. very problematic particularly if you are a group of people with lived experience of obesity mm. but that being said um i do think that the weight issues network um is trying to do this the right way and i, I spoke to two members of the board over the phone for 45 minutes mm-hmm. um and they were very friendly <laughs> first of all <laughs> um and they were very firm about the fact that they were independent from the obesity collective um, so they've got their own board and there's no crossover between board members. Um, and they were accepting pro bono work from people who are involved in the B-City Collective. Um, but that's about it. Um, and they're going to have some sponsors in the future, but they're going to be able to choose who those sponsors are. Um, and they haven't really announced any yet. So at the moment, they are completely independent. Wow. Which is yeah. good. Laudable. <laughs> I think the the question of whether we medicalize obesity in the way that it often is, you know, whether whether that's the right thing to do or the way we go about it is the right way, I think that's a complex question. It's something that's, like, going to be affecting more and more people. Mm, and I just think it's awful to go to the doctor and instead of the doctor being kind and... I'm sure a lot of them are kind and nice, but, like, instead of them being really empathetic, they're just judging you. Well, I do think that that <laughs> speaks to a really central issue in this whole... Uh, area, which is that obesity is very much seen as an individual failing, that any excess weight is seen as, as something wrong with you. Not not something uh, problematic to do with someone's body, but something intrinsically uh, wrong with them as a person because they haven't, you know, controlled their eating, they haven't constantly exercised. And that's where a lot of the stigma comes from because it's still seen as this uh, acceptable to consider obese people as... as um, intrinsically bad and that's so you hear a lot of stories particularly I think of, of people who are more disadvantaged uh, women people of color that sort of thing who are obese as well who have gone in to see the doctor and been treated awfully 
I, I think it's it's so cruel because a lot of these weight trajectories are set when people are five years old. Mm. Nothing they could do about it. It's, you know, it's in their DNA and then it's in, because they're brought up in a particular environment, it sort of gets set in stone and it becomes very hard to shift. Mm. I, I just think it's unfair to judge people on that. Even if there was some moral failing, and I don't think that there is, but even if there was, it's still not okay to judge people because you don't know their story. Exactly, which is why we need to hear those these stories. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so yeah, I, I spoke to some of these board members at the Weight Issues Network, and so there was uh, Lynn Kepler, she's the Indigenous representative on the board, and she describes herself as a retired school teacher, a businesswoman, mother of three, and grandmother of 14. I've suffered obesity most of my life, from even though I've danced since the age of five. So Miss Kepler has had surgery twice. From that, I've lost 45 kilos. I've regained my mobility from being on a scooter and a walking frame to now having no dance, no age at all, and I'm back dancing, doing rock and roll. <laughs> and I haven't done the dancing for nearly 20 years. So she told me the Weight Issues Network was all about fighting stigma, something that she's experienced firsthand. Um, it's also about providing evidence-based education on obesity. And another board member I spoke to was Divya Ramachandran, and she told me that she doesn't identify as a patient, but that she was born with obesity. Until about 10 years ago, I didn't connect my weight with my health. Uh, weight was just a thing. It wasn't central in my life. So after the birth of her daughter, she started to recognise the health risks associated with obesity, and she tried a lot of diets. Some were very detrimental, some were very restrictive, um, and she found it almost impossible to get tailored weight loss advice. Mind you, I'm highly educated, well-qualified, I'm not stupid. So I'm saying the information out there is just not, uh, you know, evidence-based advice. It's just not easily available. And I really couldn't walk up to a GP and ask her how to manage my weight. And uh, if I did walk to three, four different GPs, which I've done, uh, each time I would get, you know, completely, uh, you know, dismissive, you know, just exercise, eat less kind of advice. So it seems to me like the Weight Issues Network is trying to attract the right kind of mix of skills. Um, and if it succeeds, it could become an advocacy powerhouse similar to Diabetes Australia or the Heart Foundation, which I think would be probably a good thing. I think that'd be fantastic. I mean, those... Those organizations do an immense amount of good. So on the phone call, there was also Tiffany Peter. So she's the director of the Obesity Collective. She's an ex-PWC consultant um, who's sort of lending a hand and helping them get set up. And so she, you know, you could tell she was an ex-consultant. She had this amazing capacity to facilitate a meeting and make everyone feel really heard and that everyone was equal. And I can see why her background and, and some other people who are helping out from the BC Collective would really help bring this group together. Mm -hmm. And not just smoothing things over, but really drawing in the skills that are required to get an advocacy group off the ground, you know, people who know how to speak to the press, people who know how to tell really compelling stories, people who know how to reach out and get funding, how to organise meetings, you know, how to... Mm. Um, they're hard. Yeah, set down principles, do. communicate things in language that doesn't upset anybody, those kinds of things. So, yeah, I, I was getting a sense of like, oh, yeah, you guys are setting things out kind of in an appropriate way, which was good. But I, I guess the, the really big question is whether Hayes activists will be welcome at Win, considering all of these divides and, and fissures already appearing in, the, in this movement, this emergent movement. Yeah, so I asked Tiffany that, and this is what she had to say. I think... We have aligned interests around 
reducing stigma. And as as Divya mentioned, you know, we've all experienced struggling with the diet and the pressure and, and misinformation. Um, so I think the, the body positivity people are, are making a lot of progress in that space, and I think it's valuable. Um, but there are a lot of people that, as we just said, spending a lot of money on these diets and things, there's people that want help. We've seen studies and focus group research. People people want help in dealing with this. Mm-hmm. Now, I think if, if people don't want help and they say that to their clinicians, they should 100% be respected. Mm-hmm. Or if they don't want to talk about their weight, should 100% be respected. And I think we're on the same page that people should be treated with respect, Mm -hmm. and that's not necessarily happening. Um, But to ignore that people want to do something about their their weight or to ignore the the damage from increased fat in the body leading to chronic disease, I think um, is not going to be helpful for people. I think a lot of it is that nobody has bothered to ask them because when I picked up the phone and spoke to people who are themselves overweight or obese they were really happy to talk to me and they really wanted to get their message out there mm-hmm. i just think nobody's organized them um, and they're speaking to each other privately on these closed facebook groups where they share clothing advice and they you know talk about how to stop your doctor being really pushy and you know how to stand up for yourself so like they're clearly out there they just haven't been mobilized <laughs> which is where i think you know like people who've got those skills coming into that space could really help. Yeah, but because I, I, I think that, that unlike a lot of the conditions we were talking about earlier, like heart disease or diabetes, there's a lot of stigma associated with coming out as an organization for obese people. You and think the organization has stigma around it? A hundred percent. Really? Though every one of the people in that organization will have, particularly the women, I'm sure, because society is an awful place, will be attacked. I think there's a big difference between being... Um, obese as a pers- fat person living your life and being public the face of Obesity Australia. That's true. Or whatever the organization. And I think uh, it's incredibly brave to do that. Um, and as I said earlier, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know if I ever would have considered or ever would consider joining an organization like that, even though I agree that it's very necessary. I think maybe now because I'm more comfortable with myself, but... Um, I can tell you there are a lot of brave people with obesity out there because I've spoken to them and they're amazing and I I really think that they can make a difference. I think it's a fantastic thing to do and I hope that they have the success of Diabetes Australia or the Heart Foundation or the Cancer Council or any of these organisations because it needs to be done. Definitely. Okay, that's it for this week's episode. Check in next week for our bonus episode on how to get the hang of NIPT. We'll catch you then. Goodbye. I hope we don't get locked up on the roof. I did check the handle time. Okay.